ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. On the show today, you'll meet the company that is looking to recycle those plastic ear tags that you see in livestock. Ideally, I would love to partner with ear tag manufacturers and take that raw recycled material and input it into making new ear tags, so a fully circular solution. And tell me, did you jag some rain over the weekend? It sounds like there's some cattle stations celebrating in parts of central Australia. The rain gradually got heavier and heavier and by lunchtime we, we thought, well, you know, we, we're going to have to call the day off here and crack open some beers and, and enjoy the moment. We don't get this opportunity very often. Sounds good to me. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour, a big show. Hope you can stick around. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day to those who have downloaded the podcast. Now, first up today, and this might sound like a strange headline, but did you know that Australia is running short of carbon dioxide, CO2? It is used a lot in the food and beverage industry. And the current shortage is playing out in your supermarket with Woolworths and Coles confirming to the ABC that shortages of CO2 have impacted the supply of some soft drinks. The fizzy drinks are running out of fizz. And this is also impacting Australia's meat processing industry. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. But first, let's find out why the nation is running out of CO2. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Dan... We've got a statement from BOC, which is one of the largest producers of liquefied CO2. What has BOC had to say? Yeah, BOC has confirmed that it is experiencing a short-term CO2 supply shortage across the east coast of Australia. It says this is due to supply interruptions from several local CO2 sources and issues impacting international freight for imported CO2 products. Uh, BOC said it is prioritising supply for critical medical, safety and water treatment customers. That's why there's not so much uh, on the fizzy drink side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it says it's also working with suppliers and other industry stakeholders to manage the situation. BOC said it's committing to increasing long-term CO2 reliability and supply, and this includes building a new CO2 processing facility in Victoria. Mm, they're building a big plant. And that is expected to be operational in the second half of this year. And that facility will have the capacity to produce around 60,000 tonnes of beverage-grade liquid CO2 each year. Okay, thank you very much, Dan. Can you believe it? How much CO2 have you and I supplied just in the last minute? Unbelievable, unbelievable. Now, it's not just soft drinks that are affected by this. Uh, CO2 is also a key ingredient for meat processors. Uh, so let's have a chat to Simon Quilty. He's a meat and livestock analyst with Global AgriTrends. Simon, can you explain to our audience why CO2 is so important to the meat processing sector? Sure. The use of CO2 makes dry ice, and it's basically done by pressurised carbon dioxide cooled into a liquid form. Um, of CO2. And so that's then used when transporting fresh meat 
around Australia, which is mainly done in steel bins from plant to various um, end users. So approximately every year, about 200,000 tonnes of manufacturing meat in Australia is moved, you might say, from plant to facilities and the use of CO2, liquid CO2, is critical for that movement. So if you've gone and bought a steak from one of the major supermarkets in the last week, you can thank CO2. You can, and you can thank them for the last probably 20 or 30 years for that, because (laughs) without CO2 in a liquid format, really a lot of this domestic transport simply would not occur. And it has two uses, not just for manufacturing meat, but it's used for um, modified atmospheric packaging. And so that gives shelf life to various cuts of meat in supermarkets. So it's a twofold need. Manufacturing dominates the the, the need for liquid CO2, but um, the use of modified atmospheric packaging is also a critical part of the meat industry that requires CO2 as well. And there has been shortages before, yes? There has. So the most memorable one was December 2021, which truly the industry was brought to the knees in terms of the lack of um, CO2. And at the time, it was a breakdown at the Gibson Island plant um, in Queensland. So then since then, Matt, we've seen that Gibson Island plant, which makes about, it made about 20% of Australia's CO2 needs, has been completely shut down. Um, so we're today, you might say, existing hand-to-mouth on a very tight supply chain of CO2 liquid, and as a result, now imported liquid CO2 has been used. This current shortage, have you heard of it causing problems for those in the meat processing sector? Without doubt. I've seen, you know, talking to um, both supermarkets, but also for grinding meat operators, they are scratching their heads because they're so reliant on that fresh meat. So some of the options that have been dealt with or used has been frozen um, meat being brought into facilities, but that then requires a whole different set of infrastructure to try and manage that. But a number of meat processes um, have moved across to liquid nitrogen. And that's a really important alternative that has become more and more, you might say, popular as the you know, situation has become more erratic with liquid CO2. In the statement from BOC, it's hard to tell how long this shortage will last for. I don't know if you've heard anything in, uh, in your networks, Simon. So this shortage has been going on for four weeks and is expected to last another two months. So all up three months. And it's been brought about by, you know, the scheduled maintenance period um, that they've said. So what they do in these situations is that there are, you might say, essential services, Matt, um, of which hospitals that also use CO2 get priority. And dare I say, beer makers as well, Matt, which I'm not sure if that's an essential (laughs) service or not. (laughs) And look, there is, you know, solutions on the horizon. And with 
the shutdown of various facilities because CO2 is a byproduct of the fertiliser industries and other you know, um, industries out there. So we've got a new facility coming on in Victoria and that is going to be a critical part of the solution. That's at Longford and there's um, the expected to come on stream later on this year in the, um, the last quarter of this year. BOC has done an arrangement with the Gippsland Basin joint venture between Esso and Woodside, and out of that is expected around 60,000 tonnes of CO2. So all the issues that we're now talking of, when that comes online, that facility, hopefully disappear, Matt. So between now and then, though, how damaging do you think this shortage will be for businesses and for consumers? I think it is damaging only because it adds those additional costs in the pipeline. And it's not just you know domestically all the issues, but the imported liquid CO2, that is having issues now because of the Red Sea issues. So we've got the Middle East crisis going on. Um, ships are having to be re-diverted, therefore it's very costly. So all these things just add more and more cost to the, to the supply chain, Matt. Is imports really how businesses get through this period? You bring it in? I, I think so. I mean, I, the estimate is about um, half of our liquid CO2 needs today is being supplied by imports. But, Matt, that came at a price. Mm. So the cost you know, two, three, four years ago was about $350, $400 per metric tonne. Today, it's doubled. It's, you know, you're looking closer to 650 to 700 and that's simply because it is a much costlier process bringing in as imported. Love learning about CO2 with you today, Simon Quilty. Thanks for your time. <laughs> a pleasure, man. Simon Quilty, he is a meat and livestock analyst with Global Agri-Trends. On the text number this afternoon, which is 0487991057, Turk says, could Inpex and Santos turn their CO2 injection wells into dollars? The Barossa field holds up to 20% CO2, says Turk this afternoon. Let's not put it underground. Let's put it in the fizzy drinks, potentially. Not too sure. 0487991057 is our text number. G'day, it's Jeff Tucker from the Sydney Fish Market and you're listening to The Country Hour. And I'm joined in the studio again by Dan Fitzgerald not to talk about... Well, it is a bit about gas, but it's mostly about batteries, Dan. And just hang on a second, Dan. I've got a theme song for you. Get one of these! One of these! Laboratory tests prove in most devices, Energizer lasts longer than any other battery. New Energizer. You enjoying that one? You've got big battery news for us. That theme song sounds a bit before my time, Matt. (laughs) I just say. You've got big battery news. I do, yes. Mm. Uh, The NT government says construction has finished on the $45 million big battery that it's been building out at Channel Island for the last few years. The commissioning process to connect it to the grid is underway right now. 
Uh, so this 35 megawatt big battery, you'll also hear it called a BESS, which is a battery energy storage system. Yes. is designed, um, as the name suggests, to store electricity, especially from renewable sources. And it can be used when there's an unexpected power outage. It's not quite big enough to cover the event that we had in Darwin a couple of weeks ago, but it would help in that situation. Uh, The NT government has also announced today that it will build a second big battery or BESS. That's going to be somewhere along the Darwin to Catherine grid. Location hasn't been set yet, but it could end up near Catherine um, if all goes to plan. The Chief Minister, Eva Lawler, uh, she says that the big battery near Channel Island will hopefully be online toward the end of this year. It's great news, though, uh, for us to have this first best that's been, and you can see it here on site, the work has been done around the construction. Now comes the complex work of actually doing all of the, the testing of that big best. But it is also important to talk about today a second big battery, a second best that will go in. So the Darwin Catherine Electricity Plan, now the Darwin Catherine Electricity System is, um, is a microgrid. When you speak to people, they tell you actually how small it is compared to what we see in the rest of Australia. But a 35 megawatt battery is still a big battery. So besides the batteries, there's also work around quick start generators, so smaller generators that can uh, start very quickly, that can be hydrogen compatible. So it's also about making sure that we have those quick start generators that will also provide uh, those, those, the stability uh, and the work that we need on the Darwin Catherine electricity system. Chief Minister Eva Lawler, she was speaking there at a press conference out at Channel Island in front of the big battery early this morning. So if you want to see what exactly that looks like, uh, tune in to the ABC News on the telly at 7pm tonight. Dan, thank you for bringing us the battery news. We've been talking batteries, we've been talking carbon dioxide. I've got one text message here that says Darwin used to have its own CO2 plant before the cyclone at Carver Ice. I don't think it came back again in 1975. That might be one to track down, Dan. We had our own helium plant, which is no longer producing. Did Darwin once have a CO2 plant? We'll look into that. Thank you very much. Whoever sent that through on 0487991057. We'll be talking about fire next. The bushfire season in Central Australia has been extended. How concerned are authorities? You'll find out next. Keith Urban, Kerry Underwood. You are tuned into the Country Hour on a Monday lunchtime. I trust you are well. It's 13 to 1. Now, the bushfire danger period for Central Australia, it's been extended for another two months until the 1st of May, which means if you're in Central Australia, you will need a permit to go and do any burning. And it also means that fire authorities are concerned about the high fuel loads in that region. They wouldn't do this unless there was a fair bit of grass out there. Tony Fuller is from Bushfires NT, and he says it is unusual to have the fire season extended by two months. Yeah, it's out of the ordinary, um, but it's it's a lot to do with the amount of fuel loads that's still around, and you know the recent rains haven't helped any. Um, a lot of the mitigation work we did late last year is actually uh, could carry fire now. It's uh, the regrowth has been that significant. Uh, do you have any particular areas which are of major concern? 
look, yeah, there, there's a fair, fair whack of land between here and Tennant Creek that's um, got a lot of fuel in it, um, and that's that's our primary concern uh, at the moment, and we're just going to monitor that. We'll try and get as much mitigation as we can, but the problem is, as, as you were well aware, it can... Uh, it, it takes a bit to get that burning and, and then if we get some winds and some dry weather then it makes it even harder for us to do that. In the Barclay and especially the further you go into the north of the Barclay it, it certainly has they've got some mega rains in recent months. Are they at less risk than say further south south of Tennant Creek? No look basically from Tennant Creek down to Alice there's, there's a lot of regrowth. Um, maybe we, we probably won't get any fire so our next six weeks is what we're worried about so we'll see what happens there if we get some dry spells we might have some fires but the amount of rain that's been around Tennant and Barkley probably not as much of a risk but you know come August September we hope we don't have the same repeat of what we had last year but that may be on the cards. What do we know about the forecast longer range over the next month and a half? Look, uh, we're expecting it to, to dry out, and yeah, we've we've been expecting that for a while. The Weather Bureau keep telling us that it, it is going to dry out, but um, and we've kept the planes on till uh, late last week, but we've stood them down, uh, expecting that behaviour weather to change, but it hasn't. We keep getting this independent rain, which uh, makes it hard for us to do any mitigation. So, yeah, look, we we'll just wait and see what what happens, and uh, hopefully, we won't get any really prolonged hot spells with, with wind, but um, we've still got a helicopter and a spotter plane on standby in Alice Springs uh, just in case that weather does turn uh, nasty on us and we've got additional resources uh, yeah. ready in Alice Springs and, and some others ready to come down if need be. Given the uh, concerns here and given the fire season we've, we've had so far and you know, look, things actually started burning in March of last year south of just south of Alice Springs, and have you toted up how much work Bushfires NT has done in the last year when it comes to managing or trying to deal with the fire situation in the centre in Barclay? Do you actually go and do an audit of what you've done and, uh, and sort of how costly that is? Because it all, it all costs something at the end, doesn't it? Yeah, look... Uh... <laughs> I think I've blown my budget about five times what I normally would. Um, it's just you know, we have to react to what the, the threat is, and that's what we've been doing. Um, I haven't actually got some numbers on it at the moment, but uh, effectively we've been working since about April last year uh, from the top end then moving down into Central, and then we're starting, we'll be starting very shortly work in the top end again. So, you know, it's, it's a long season. Normally we have a bit of a break. But uh, we're not going to get it this year. Uh, I don't don't know if you want to predict what next next fire season will look like for Central Australia and the Barclay. But given the fuel loads and the rain we've had so far, come say August September, what what are you thinking? How we might be looking? Uh, not not uh, <laughs> not too good. I don't think. Um, I'm sure the pastures love it. But uh, there is a lot of fuel there and a, and a lot of rain around there, and um, I'm sure we'll get a lot of fuel uh, regrowth. So. Yeah, I'm sure that we'll be back there um, come August, September. That is Tony Fuller from Bushfires NT speaking to Stuart Brash. Meanwhile, in the top end, the Jarwin Rangers, they're getting ready to start some early season burns. 
the ranges. They generate carbon credits through their early dry season burning and, of course, also help to manage fuel loads in the Nipmaluk National Park. Senior ranger Tristan Lemmy-Lemmy says the group has been planning for what looks like being a very busy year. We've got a big country that we look after, like 55,000 square kilometres of country that we look after. We go right back to Pine Creek, then all the way down to Mataranka as well with the Mangara Rangers because we've got a joint management and also look after the park and with the joint management with the parks as well. And with the fires like last year and all that and probably this, this year will be pr- pretty good because we've got, we got a good wet this year. How are you preparing for this year's uh, fire season? We just, we prepare, we're preparing, like we're doing the cons- consultation that we do on arid communities, going to consult with our traditional owners to let them know that we're going to go into the country and burn and also get them alongside of us going out to the country and work alongside of us as well because that's the main, part, main thing to do, you know, working alongside of traditional owners. From uh, the wet that we've seen so far this year, do you think it's going to be a big fire season? Yeah, this year I reckon it'll be a really big fire season. That's the whole reason why like, we've got our full-time crew here and we've also got casuals that join our team as well. And uh, you're also doing a couple of training courses for some uh, new members? Yeah, well, probably like on the March now, like on the second week of March, there's a, um aircraft and safety course coming up and also the um, Bombardier training for the um, new rangers that, that just joined us. So we've got about three new women rangers and three new uh, men rangers as well. And so new ranger positions, what are you looking for? Oh, we're looking for women that will be reliable, they'll be happy to go out bush and learn on Jawan country and get to manage the country with us as well. We need more women so that younger generation, you know, that when they grow up, younger women won't be afraid to join ranger groups or come in, come in and work with work as a ranger, you know, because nowadays you see some young women or some young ladies, you know, they're too afraid to come out of the comfort zone and come, in, come and work, come out bush. That is Jowan Ranger Tristan Lemmy Lemmy speaking there to Jan Cahoon. We wish all Rangers all the best for the months ahead. It is five to one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Did you know there's about 1,300 kids from the Northern Territory who go interstate for boarding school every year? Is there enough staff to look after these students? We'll find out next. For all those yearnings for truly outstanding entertainment... I have an idea of what might cheer you up. ..you'll find a trove of Academy Award winning and nominated films on ABC iView. Let's play. Like Imitation Game. It's beautiful. American Sniper, Her and Spotlight. There's a story here and I think it's an important story. Brooklyn, Carol and so many more. Bon appétit. Always free, always outstanding on ABC iView. The Australian Boarding Schools Association says boarding schools around this nation are desperate for staff. A huge number of staff left this industry when boarding houses closed during the COVID pandemic. And apparently right now, the 200 boarding schools across Australia are short on about 4,000 staff. They need 4,000 people. 
to keep the boarding houses running. Boarding School Association Chief Executive Richard Stokes says finding new staff is one of the biggest challenges facing this sector. Look, uh, boarding staffing is one of the great challenges of this country, but it's not unlike many of the teaching challenges that we've got too. Uh, So there are, let's paint a picture, 200 boarding schools in Australia, exactly, in fact, 200. Uh, About 23,000 boarders, 4,000 boarding staff. So to find 4,000 people who want to give up their spare time, really, to look after kids in, uh, to look look after other people's kids is an interesting um, concept. Why do you describe it as spare time? Is that because of the hours? Yeah, it is. When I say that, it's because, uh, and we call it the other 18 hours, they work from three till nine, not nine till three. And so they don't get uh, the the opportunities that people who work from nine till five uh, do very much. And so it's a really interesting space. It's something I fell into uh, when I was 19 and haven't left since. How um, big would you say the, the need is for more boarding staff at the moment? Desperate we are. We're desperate for people who understand that it's all about developing positive relationships with kids. It is without fail, one of the most rewarding jobs that you could ever do. Uh, yes, there are some kids who just send you crazy, but to be honest with you, when you run into somebody who sent you crazy 10 years later and they actually put their arm around you and say thank you for making my life so so valuable, you know that it was a really, really wonderful job. What sort of skills do boarding staff need to have? Yeah, great. <laughs> great question. Um, really, it's actually about uh, the opportunity to build positive relationships. They need to care. Uh, they need to like kids. That's really interesting to say that, but we really actually focus on trying to trying to do that. They need to realise that the administration comes second, that the actual kids' lives come first. Uh, and they re- need to realise that you need to be very patient uh, and have a sense of humour, I think. What sort of recruitment strategies have you been on to help schools find boarding staff? Well, the Australian Boarding Schools Association runs a job board, biggest it's ever been um, since the pandemic. Right, the pandemic actually really put us under a bit of pressure and people have gone and found other jobs instead, which has been quite challenging. Uh, but we do also send posters to universities to try and encourage people who are doing professions that might be useful yeah so yeah they might be studying psychology they might be studying education uh, to think about working in a boarding school while they're doing that because it's a really good way to learn whether that's the space for you and whether it works so I think that's a, a good space for us to work in too uh, and other than that we're looking for ideas you know, we really work hard at trying to you know send a good message and stories like this actually are really valuable too. How important would you say a boarding staff member can be in a student's life? Well I tell a story. I ran into a mum at an ICPA conference a few years back and she turned to me and said, she said, so you're the Mr Stokes that my husband still talks about. That's how important you can actually be in their life. Because he was a student when you were a boarding staff member? He was one of my boarders, absolutely, yeah. That's Richard Stokes, who's the Chief Executive of Boarding Schools Association, speaking to Victoria Ellis. Now, we're getting quite a few questions coming through on the text line regarding that big battery news that Dan the Man Fitzgerald shared with us a moment ago. Dan's just getting some answers for you, which we'll share with you in the second half of the Country Hour. We'll also be catching up with a company that is looking to recycle those ear tags, those plastic ear tags that you see in livestock around this nation. So that's all coming up in our second half. I hope you can stick around. But now it's news time, one o'clock. G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Tell me, did you jag some rain over the weekend? 
There's a few cattle stations in Central Australia who are celebrating. The rain gradually got heavier and heavier and by lunchtime we, we thought, well, you know, we, we're going to have to call the day off here and crack open some beers and, and enjoy the moment. We don't get this opportunity very often. Mm, we always love celebrating rain on the Country Hour and we'll do just that in a moment. When a cow goes into an abattoir, beautiful steaks come out of it. Steaks and rumps and it's just good stuff. What happens to the plastic ear tag though? Have you ever thought about what happens to the plastic ear tag once a beast goes into a processing facility? Sadly, the answer is waste. It just goes to landfill, goes to waste. But there is a company in Australia that's trying to fix this problem and you'll hear from the company before 1.30. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. And Beck, look at those top-end radars this afternoon. There's a bit of rain about. Yeah, that's right. Good afternoon, Matt. Um, yeah, we've got a bit of a trough that's formed up near the north coast of the top end, so helping to make things a little bit active, um, particularly over the northeast Arnhem district at the moment. We've got probably a weak low over there um, that's um, producing a bit of rainfall through that area. But as you said, we've got scattered showers right throughout the top end um, and just the start of a few storms popping up as well, um, particularly uh, south of Catherine to about Elliot. We're seeing those storms firing up already um, and could be some, some reasonable rainfall out of those moderate to heavy falls um, with, the, uh, with those storms being relatively slow moving today. Yeah, looks like our friends at Dundee Beach are getting absolutely poured on this afternoon. There's a fair bit of colour on the radar around the coast there. What sort of week is it going to be like in terms of rainfall? Uh, northern half of the Territory uh, should get some some reasonable rainfall throughout the week. We're going to have this trough hanging around that north coast all area um, right throughout the week. So... Um, uh, yeah, those storms continuing across the top end particularly, but um, yeah, a little bit further south as well. The Gregory District probably going to be seeing some, some reasonable rainfall through the week as well. Mm, I've got a text here from Dave in Palmerston. It says 53 millimetres in the gauge. Not too shabby, says uh, Dave in Palmerston. Uh, we're about to hear from a station... In Central Australia, that's picked up 122 millimetres. I think that pretty much all came on the Friday. Beck, have you got the weekend's rainfall figures to share with us, the 72-hour figures? Yeah, I do. Um, so uh, over the, the Alice Springs area, the numbers that we've got um, probably a bit less than what you're thinking. Um, so Karundi with 48 is the highest that we've got mm -hmm. Um through that area. Tanami, though, t uh, Rabbit Flats picked up 90 millimetres. Um, so, yeah, the Tanami district has had some reasonable rainfall across the weekend. Uh, as well as the, the Barclay Victoria River district, uh, we've got a few over 100 millimetres. Armstrong River, 125. Upper Townsend Creek with 110. Supplejack, 105. Uh, so, some good falls there. 
Um, going further north, um, we had some uh, a good storm at Daly Waters yesterday. I think they picked up over 70 millimetres in about an hour. Wow. Um, so, yes, yeah, some good falls from that. Um, Central Arnhem Plateau in Arnhem District, 102 millimetres over three days. Um, and, uh, yeah, we also had the perhaps... Uh, ironically named Dry River with 128 <laughs> millimetres. The Dry River looking very wet this Monday lunchtime. And there is a flood watch in place for the Tanami Desert. What does that region need to be aware of? Yeah, that's right. Um, we have seen some pretty good rainfall through that area uh, over the last uh, few days. And um, we have been seeing an easing over the Barclay and that central desert area, which we did have that flood watch out for, but um, the, those areas have um, uh, decreased a bit with the rainfall and a little bit less expected over those eastern areas um, over the next few days. And the Tanami as well should be starting to ease off over the next 24 hours. And the week ahead for fishers, got any good news for them? Uh, pretty light winds out on the waters mm-hmm. uh, this week with that trough hanging around. Um, so Darwin Harbour, um, probably not getting up above much above 10 knots um, and fa- fairly variable winds through the week. Uh, north coast to the top end, um, generally west to southwesterly winds with um, depending on where that trough sort of drifts north or south. Um, and in the Gulf of Carpentaria, those winds a bit more easterly, um, getting up to about 10 to 15 knots um, through those southern parts of the, the Gulf of Carpentaria. Beautiful. Must be raining out of Bino this afternoon. Sprinkles is reporting that he's got the cake of soap and the towel out for a shower. So sprinkles <laughs> this afternoon. All right, thank you so much for that, Beck. Uh, you a keen fisherman? Have you been out there trying to catch this million-dollar barrel? No, I no. haven't. I had a no. nightmare. I had a nightmare on the weekend. Uh, I was dreaming that I was fishing with my sons, and one of them jagged a barra. It jumps out of the water. It's got a tag in it, and I've yelled out, "It's the million dollar barra!" And then the thing spat the lure and jumped off. The, the shock <laughs> of it, I, it woke me up. I, I woke up in a lather, going, "Oh, wouldn't that just be the worst feeling in the world?" To lose a million bucks like that. You certainly don't want that fish to get away. You do, do you? not. Yeah, you'd you'd have to go and get some counselling, I would have thought, if <laughs> it came off the line. I'll let you be. Have a lovely afternoon. All right. Thanks, Matt. That is Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. It is 12 past one. This is the country hour. There has been some decent rain around Central Australia and the Barkley sort of over the last four or five days at Amberlindum Station which is a bit northeast of Alice Springs. This is incredible. They got 122 millimetres in one day. So this happened on Friday. Apparently the Hale River ran an absolute banker. Wouldn't that be a sight to see? Sarah Cook says the rain was so beautiful, so welcome, that the whole station took the day off. It was drizzling and it was enough to make you feel happy, but, um, you know, we, we didn't really think we would get much out of it. So we started off with shed jobs and had a bit of a program for the day and um, the rain gradually got heavier and heavier and by lunchtime we we thought, well, you know, we, we're going to have to call the day off here and crack open some beers and, and enjoy the moment. We don't get this opportunity very often.
So we did. We put on a sausage sizzle and everybody um, settled in. And uh, just after lunch there, uh, started the bucket down. And I, I mean, I've never seen such uh, solid rain. And it rained like cats and dogs for probably uh, two and a half, three hours. And um, then she all sort of pulled up and uh, we had a look around and headed down to the river and the Howell River was running a banker. It was um, an extraordinary afternoon. It was 129 mils uh, for the day of Friday. Yeah. Wow. And what does that rain mean to you? Oh, it means everything, of course. We're very excited to see um, several of our dams that had gone dry um, have either partially or entirely filled. Um, we have been carting water uh, um, to several sites up until uh, Friday, so it means that our work program can now change and we can start putting our resources where they need to be, which is getting on to our mustering program. Um, but, of course, the dust has settled and um, new life is already springing up around us and it just makes everybody happy and really just changes your outlook for, um, you know, for the next couple of months moving forward. Um, you know, as exciting as the 129 mils in one fall is, um, it's also, you know, has rushed, you know, a couple of gullies and, and so there's a bit of work going on in the greater today and for probably the next couple of days just um, with regards to access. But um, if we could get a bit of follow-up rain you know, moving forward, that would just really help us along for the year. And it's been a, a pretty dry summer for you. When was the last time you had some rain? Oh, uh, incredibly dry. And um, you sort of caught, caught me on the hop there because it was it was not significant. It was, I was just saying earlier, probably I think our last fall was five mils and it's probably six weeks or so ago. Um, it's been incredibly hot and, yeah, really quite challenging actually this year. I'll tell you what, you, you really you really feel very blessed when you get rain. It just makes a big difference to your life, yep. Your mindset as well as as uh, your production. Do you know if the rain was that widespread? How did your neighbours fare? Our neighbours fared well. Most of the neighbours got up to that 60 mil mark, which is um, still good rain, and um, I think we're all just feeling... Uh, happy that it that it visited us um, in this region. It's been it's been a long time coming. So uh, you still have to get underneath that cloud, though. You know, it seems to be pulling up. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is um, just what we observe because we're sort of focusing on it. But it seems to be pulling up that north of Tennant Creek country, and uh, and then the rest of us play that waiting game and take what we can get. But really pleased that that Tennant Creek country blew a little bit of it our way and we're happy to take it and we'd like to pass it on to our other friends that haven't received any rain yet and are still waiting. And how are things looking today? Are there any clouds about? Well, it's pretty extraordinary how quickly the grass can grow on the lawn. When, when, you, when it gets rain, you can water the hell out of it over the summer and if you haven't got rain, it, it grows quite slowly. But once it's got rain on it, it's probably grown like four inches in two days. Um, but, yeah, look, we're all now um, reinvigorated in our mustering plans and we've got some, you know, our, our, some options have opened up with the dams filling um, and it's good to know that there's going to be um, 
uh, green feed um, getting around. So no, we're, uh, and also we don't have to cart water. Um, the rain did fall in those areas where we've been um, working really hard to keep that water supply up. So no, it's, um, it's bloody great stuff. That is Sarah Cook from Amberlindum Station in Central Australia speaking to Dan Fitzgerald who joins me in the studio again. Uh, Dan, in the first half of the program, you were telling us about this big battery that's been unveiled at uh, Channel Island today, and we've received some questions about this battery, and you've been, you've been busy. You've been doing the good work for us, finding some answers for our audience. So one question here, Dan, says, how many hours will the battery supply power for? Well, I'm not too sure in terms of hours, Matt. What these big batteries are designed to do is help with fluctuations from power supplied by solar. So if a cloud comes over Darwin, all the rooftop solar's power production drops. It takes the gas turbines a while to power back up and to cover that drop. So this big battery is designed to jump in quickly, supply some power to cover that shortfall. But in terms of a size comparison, the big battery, it'll produce around 35 megawatts of power. The Channel Island gas turbines in total, they produce around 280 megawatts of power. So it doesn't cover the whole of Channel Island, certainly. Okay, we've got a question here from Dave who wants to know, do we know the lifespan of these batteries compared to the lifespan of a gas turbine? Uh, Again, no, not quite, but uh, I can tell you that the NT government press release says this big battery is forecast to deliver cost savings of around $9.8 million per year, so it pays for itself in about five years from connection to the grid. So the NT government says it is certainly cost-effective over five years or so. And as for the gas turbines, well, that is something to look out for at Channel Island. The ones at the power station are getting quite old and about half the generation capacity of the plant is due to be retired between 2027 and 2030. So there's a big gap there that needs to be filled. The NT government is hoping it will be filled by renewables, but at the pace renewables are coming onto the grid, well, that remains Mm. to be seen over the next few Mm. years. Okay. And Turk's been wondering if Inpex and Santos should be capturing their CO2 emissions and turning into fizzy drinks. (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, I imagine if they did, they would supply, be able to supply more than enough for Australia. There's a lot of CO2 in those fizzy drinks there. Thank you, Dan, for the gas and the battery news. One of these! Our text number zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven. Sprinkle says, Matt, it could be worse. Imagine catching the million dollar barra and a croc took it off the line. You'd have to go in and try and wrestle it. Uh, I'm not sure about that, Sprinkles. I'm not sure about that. Hey, up next on the Country Hour, I hope you can stick around. You'll get to meet the Aussie company that is looking to recycle those plastic air tags that you see in cattle and you see in sheep. That story's next. Bit of Barnsley for your Monday lunchtime. We've been talking about batteries on the Country Hour today. They've built a big battery, <laughs> a big battery at Channel Island. How big is it, though? I've got a text here that says, Matt, the Recharging the Territory report 
says the battery is way too small. It's five times smaller than the one built in South Australia eight years ago. It's a good step forward, but not enough, says someone here on 0487991057. Now, think about this. When a cow or a sheep goes into an abattoir, gets turned into beautiful meat, what happens to the plastic ear tag? What happens to it? Well, a young entrepreneur from Western Australia is trying to establish a business that recycles those ear tags to turn them into new ear tags. To learn more about this, Lucinda Joe spoke to Natalie Bell, who is the founder of Hilo Ag. HiloAg is a digital platform that enables livestock producers, feedlots and abattoirs to recycle plastic ear tags. Why did you want to solve this problem? I think there's a lot of pressure on uh, the livestock supply chain to be sustainable, but the infrastructure just isn't there. So I wanted to take into full account the priorities of consumers and pair that then with giving producers the ability to meet those. There's a lot of plastic in agriculture. Why ear tags in particular? I just think it's it's common use, it's relatable, everyone has them um, in the livestock industry and it's something that's very visible in terms of you see them on the ground and I think that that then makes it relatable for people to want to do something to change it. And it's not just recycling them, is it? You, uh, The solution that you're offering has uh, some added benefits as well as the environment for, for the producer as well? Yeah, so... The platform not only gives direct access to a recycling stream, it also tracks the kilos of plastic that people are sending through the HiloAg platform. So you can then use that to go back at a later date and contribute to your sustainability reporting. What are they recycled into? Um, So that's where we're at at the moment is that we're designing um, what that might look like. Ideally, I would love to partner with eTag manufacturers and take that raw recycle material and input it into making new ear tags so a fully circular solution how does it work do people post things collect things so you sign up to the hilo platform and you purchase your prepaid postage label through that platform um, whack it in a box and then put it in the post at, at your local post office how long have you been doing this for so i only started the start of last year so it's been a big 12 months it's been yeah huge trajectory early on which is really exciting is there um, lots of different plastic that goes into ear tags or is it all very uniform? Yeah, so most of them are thermoplastics, but the issue comes when the metal tips on the buttons um, will then pose issues to recycling. So even with EIDs, they've got glass and copper in them as well, and that then adds complexity to how we treat that on the other end. Um, so yeah, doing a lot of work to try and overcome those issues. So you started at the beginning of last year. What is what's next? What are you hoping? Where are you hoping to take this business? So uh, we're at proof of concept stage at the moment. So next step is um, launching our website and gathering um, a consumer base, and then we'll run the first pilot. So I really want to partner with um, e-tag manufacturers and also livestock businesses um, to run the system from where to go. So sign up, send it through the system, and then see what we can produce on the other end. And where are you making money in this, Natalie? So the users of Hilo pay $20 for their postage label, 
which if they send me a three kilo box, which is the maximum, it works out to be five cents a head for cattle and three cents a head for sheep. So I really want to make sure that it's cost effective. It's not a huge money maker. The profit margin's small, but that's another one of my passions is that I'm not doing this for a huge opportunity in terms of revenue, but it's just the right thing and we just need to start somewhere. There's huge goals long-term for sustainability in 2030 and 2050. We hear it all the time, but the thrill of knowing that I can energise the livestock industry, which I'm so passionate to be a part of, to, I guess, enable them to do something themselves. Amazing. And you are a sheep producer yourself. How did you come up with this idea? So I live on a sheep property in Holbrook that my partner manages, um, but I'm actually a, a business analyst in the cattle industry. So the idea for Hilo came from a previous role where I was managing um, an account for a supermarket and um, they would ask us um, often to be displaying what we're doing for sustainability and and that's what really helped me to connect the dots between that need from the consumer end and the lack of infrastructure on the producer end. That is Natalie Bell who is the founder of Hilo Ag speaking there to Lucinda Jose. Just quickly repeating, there is a flood watch in place this afternoon for the Tanami Desert. There's been some big rain out that way. Many roads are now closed. Stay up to date via the Weather Bureau's website and also the Roads NT report. And I'm sure there'll be updates throughout the afternoon on your ABC. If you've missed any of the stories today from the Country Hour, remember you can catch it all via our podcast. See you tomorrow. Keep it rural. Listener.